Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. We will be in the book of Hebrews and in the 12th chapters. We're in our second week of our teaching series on the book of Hebrews. Uh, If you weren't here last week or you're just not familiar with the book of Hebrews, one of the things I always want to remind you is that anytime you open your Holy Bible, there is no shame in looking at the Holy Table of Contents, okay? It is okay to not know where a book is. And I think sometimes we as Christians, especially if you've been a believer for a while, you're like, I know where Hebrews is and you've been flipping for an hour. Just look. It's right at the top. You can figure it out, uh, and it'll send you to the page number. Uh, I want to welcome those of you watching online. Um, I I know a lot of you young adults are watching online, uh, and you've been staying home for the entire duration of this thing, either for your health or the health of someone you live with. Uh, And I just want to speak to you tonight, whether you're a young adult or or, or maybe you're a little older and watching with us anyway. uh, We have not forgotten about you. We see you. We think about you. We pray for you, and we look forward to the day where you're back in this room. Amen, everyone? Amen. All right. Well, hey, tonight, whether you're watching online or whether you're in this room, I want to um, preach a a very simple sermon. And that sermon is um, one of those sermons, and we've done this before, um, where we're just kind of coming into this, praying for this, thinking about tonight. Uh, I'm just really believing this sermon is one of two things. Tonight's sermon is either a word that the Holy Spirit of God will have for you, like God brought you here tonight to present this before you. God brought you here tonight because he wants to speak something to you. Or, or this is one of those words that the Holy Spirit of God brought you here tonight, not to speak to you, but rather through you. And so let me clarify what I mean. Um, tonight, I want to talk to you if you feel stuck. If you feel stuck If you feel stuck in your faith, if you feel like you've stagnated in your progress in growing like Jesus, if you feel stuck or addicted or mired down in your sin, if you feel insecure about yourself or insecure about the future or not sure about your life or your faith or what happens next, if you feel like you've just kind of hit a roadblock, tonight's sermon is for you. Like if you just kind of feel stuck, tonight's sermon is for you. And then hear me, if you're one of those people going right now, that's not me, I'm not stuck, I'm thriving, I'm growing like never before, then praise God. Because I believe he's brought you here tonight to bring this message to someone who needs to hear it. And when I say bring this message to someone who needs to hear it, I don't mean like forward them the YouTube link, okay? That's not what we're talking about here. Like I heard this tonight and you're a disaster, so I thought this would help, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking the Holy Spirit just does this amazing thing where God teaches us through his word. And then we find ourselves in a moment two days later, two weeks later, two months later, and someone's struggling with that exact thing. And we just get to kind of deliver that to them. And so again, if tonight you're stuck, I just want you to receive what the Holy Spirit of God might have for you through his word. And if tonight you are not stuck, again, online, in the room, I want you to understand that the Holy Spirit of God might just use this to minister to someone in their great need, and he wants to use you. So again, Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, Last week, if you were here, we did Hebrews chapter 11, the whole chapter. We're not even going to get close to the whole chapter tonight. Don't hold your breath. Uh, It's going to be great. We're going to walk through the back half of this incredible book of the Bible uh, that often, often gets ignored. Um, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, begins this way. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. So what's this referencing? Every time in the Bible it says, therefore, my pastor growing up taught me, every time you see a therefore, you should ask the question, what is it there for? And every time I heard that, I kind of groaned and went, that's dumb. But then I grew up and I realized like, no, that's actually helpful because it's meant to point you to something. Like the chapters of the Bible were added later to give us some reference on how to talk about this thing. But really all this is is one cogent thought, one flow of argument. And so when I see therefore, I go, okay, I'm supposed to go back to whatever was before. And whatever was before was chapter 11. 
And the entirety of chapter 11, again, if you weren't here last week, I'll fill you in. Uh, Chapter 11 of Hebrews is what we call the hall of faith. It's just all of these characters of scripture, and it shows how faithful they were, how good God was through their life. If you've never read Hebrews 11, go read Hebrews 11, because it will will dispel the notion from you that the Bible's boring. Like, it's this, like, incredible, like, highlight reel of all the things of the Bible, and you can go out and actually read those stories and see how remarkably exciting things in the Bible really can be. But this is Hebrews chapter 11. It is men and it is women of faith and of courage in the midst of circumstances we couldn't possibly even imagine. And it says, in light of those men and women, in light of their faith, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. See, what the Bible wants to describe these individuals, from Noah to Moses to Elijah to Samson to Esther to Mary, all of the people we find all throughout the scripture, what the Bible wants to describe these people as is witnesses. And when the New Testament uses the word witnesses, it uses the same word we have for martyrs. It's like the people who laid down their very lives to witness to the faithfulness of God and to witness about God's faithfulness to us. And what the scriptures describe is that we are surrounded by this cloud. It's this idea, like these people, these witnesses are just kind of watching in from us. They're kind of peering down from heaven. They're surrounding us. They're testifying. They're witnessing to us about how good and how faithful God is. It's actually kind of a wordplay. On the one hand, they're witnessing to how faithful God is. And on the other hand, they're witnessing our lives. They're witnessing our reality. Why is this interesting? Like, what does this have anything to do with someone in this room who feels stuck? Uh, Let me put it to you this way. I want to tell you two things. Number one, um, the Bible is not merely history. So so when you read Hebrews chapter 11, when you read the Old Testament, when you read the Gospels, when you read the book of Acts, I want you to know that these are histories. These are actual men and women who lived in actual time and space and did actual things with an actual God. But it's not merely history. And here's what I mean by that. The Bible is actually your family history. Because when you are blood-bought by the blood that Jesus shed on the cross for you, your bloodline merges with God's bloodline. You become God's son and God's daughter, and you become part of the family of God. And guess who else was part of the family of God? Moses, Noah, David, Samson, Elijah, Mary, John, Peter, Paul. Name any epic character of scripture and they were part of the family of God. They were part of the same family you were part of. And so when we read the Bible, it's not just history, it's your family history. And here's what I know about you. You listen to your family history different than you listen to general history. Like if I told you some wacky story about like this guy who lived in the 1800s and he was a bank robber and he got super rich and then he lost it all, you'd be like, all right, cool story. But if I was like, that was your great, great grandfather, you'd be like, tell me more, right? You would. Or if I told you some story about this guy uh, and, and he was a baseball player and he was at the top of his game and then he quit mysteriously and he was found on a desert island, you'd be like, that's a weird story. But if I was like, that was your uncle right? You kind of be like, I'm I'm more interested. Why? You've never met the person. You'll never meet the person. Why are you more interested when it's your family history? Because here's what you know intuitively. You know that your family history, even people you've never met, have shaped your life. That's what you know. You know that your family history shapes your life, even if you've never met the people who have shaped your life. And this is the fascinating thing about the Bible. So when I read the Old Testament, I'm not reading about some random thing that happened thousands of years ago that has no bearing on my life. No, no, I'm reading my family history. This is my family, and they shaped me, even if I don't understand how they shaped me. And it's not just that they shaped me, but, but Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 tells me this. 
is that they're watching me, right? There's this great cloud of witnesses. They're witnessing to God's faithfulness, and they're witnessing me. They're witnessing my life. And here's what I think we all understand intuitively. It feels different when your family's watching, right? Do you remember as a kid when you were playing baseball or softball or soccer or basketball or whatever sport you played? Like, do you remember when your parents would show up? Maybe they were there every game, but maybe you were someone who your parents didn't show up every time, but then you knew they were in the stands. You got up to bat or you stepped up to the free throw line and you knew your dad was watching, your mom was watching, or it was high school and you were in the show or you were in the musical and tonight was the night you knew your grandma was there. Like it feels different when your family's watching you. There's some awareness you have. That there's some de- de- desire inside of you to deliver because you know your family is watching. And here's what Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 tells us. Our family's watching us all the time. Like, yes, God is watching us, but for some of us, that just becomes something we dismiss so easily. But do you realize that God's family is watching us as well? Like, your life is being watched by the family of God that's come before? Let, let me put it to you this way. Like, Moses is watching you, Right? Like in some weird way, Moses is watching. And so someone out here is going, well, I had a really tough childhood. And Moses is in heaven going, me too, but you can do it, right? Like David is watching you, King David of the Bible. And someone here is going, I'm up against something powerful and strong, and I don't feel like I could ever defeat it. And David's going, oh, yes, you can. Esther's watching. Like this queen, this wonderful, powerful, wise woman of God, she's there watching. And some of you are going, I just feel in over my head, like I've stepped into something that's so big. And Esther's going, I know, I believe the Holy Spirit of God's in you. Peter's watching. Like to anyone in this room who's like me, who feels like you try to love Jesus and walk with him, but you just stumble and fall all the time, Peter's going, me too. But I'm going to testify to the faithfulness of God. Mary's watching. Paul is watching. Like all of these epic characters of scripture, they're not just historical figures. They're your family history. And they're watching. And it feels different when your family's watching. And so the person who feels stuck right now, can I just encourage your heart to know that these individuals have been there. They know what it's like. They've walked through hell and back again. And they're watching and they're cheering you on. This great cloud of witnesses saying, testifying to God's faithfulness and peering in on your life, believing that the family of God is going to continue forth. Here's how it continues. I love this chapter. It goes in the back half of verse 1. It says, Now let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And so again, this message here is for people who are stuck, or maybe it's for someone you know who's stuck, that God wants to use you to deliver this message. And what are we going to remind them? We're going to remind you tonight that the people of God, the family of God is watching you. And every time you read the Bible, you're reading this family history of how God's people act. Like this is who the people of God are. And then what's it going to say next for those of you who feel stuck? It's going to tell you to do not one, but two things. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. So there's two commands here. And I think it's easy to read this principally as one command. Like, okay, if I'm stuck, I'm supposed to throw off my sin, but there's actually two commands that are given to us. We're going to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. So so again, tonight, if you are stuck, how do you get unstuck? First off, you recognize that the family of God is behind you, cheering you on, witnessing to God's faithfulness and to your life. And then ultimately, you're going to do two things. Let me talk about those two things you're going to do based on this verse. Number one, what are you going to do? You're going to throw off sin. You're going to throw off sin in your life. And I just want to be so clear about this because I'm going to talk about sin for a moment. And I think some of you have completely disconnected your insecurity from your sin. 
You've completely disconnected the fact that you're unclear about the future and don't know which direction to go. You've completely disconnected that to your sin. But, but I want you to know that it's not every time you sin, something bad happens in your life. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. But I do believe that sin distorts our life and distorts our faith and blurs our vision of the future and blurs our vision of God. And so if you are feeling stuck tonight, if you're feeling uncertain, if you don't know how to move forward, I just want to more than suggest, I want to plead with you tonight um, that your sin has something to do with this. I want to talk to you tonight about the sin you do in secret. That sin no one knows about. Can we just be honest as young adults here in this room? Sin that happens in secret is usually sexual sin. Maybe you've got something else, but it's usual sexual. And I'm just going to say that out loud because I think there's still some people in this room who think you're the only one struggling with sexual sin. As if this is a room full of people who have never considered sexual sin in their life, but there's you sitting over there, this complete anomaly. That's not the case. There's people all over this room watching online right now who are struggling with sexual sin. And what are we going to do if we want to be unstuck? We're going to have to throw off that sin. Sin that we do in secret. Sin that we don't think is a big deal. Like some of you have just kind of gotten into a habit of certain little sins. It's not the sexual sin, because that always seems like a big deal. There's like big sins, but then there's little things like gossip. And it's not gossip, it's just called prayer requests, right? Right? So, so, so you've just kind of gotten into you, you're like, oh, you should really pray for her. Let me tell you why. And then you're spending like 47 minutes talking about her story and like 30 seconds praying about it. It's sin. You got to turn from it. The sin of the words that come out of your mouth, the little lies you tell to your mom, the little lies you told on your taxes, the little lies you told in those little spots, that sin that you just don't think is that big of a deal, that sin you've made peace with. Well, one of the things you're always going to hear from me is you are never called to make peace with your sin. You're called to make war with it. Like if you have made peace with your sin and just kind of gotten comfortable and okay with it, you're just kind of at peace with the fact that this is a place in your life that God's just never really going to get a hold of, man, I just want to call you toward war toward that sin tonight. I don't think the war metaphor is appropriate in every place of the Christian life, but here it is. You want to slay your sin. You want to destroy your sin. Don't give it any quarter in your life. Like if I just kind of continue to pick on certain people and just meddle in your life because that's what I do up here, um, I just want to continue to talk about, okay, um, there's certain sins some of you have made peace with. For some of you, um, again, I've said this throughout the pandemic. Um, I think for some of you, the peace you made, the sin you've made peace with is, is your relationship to alcohol. Uh, I just think you've gotten to this place where you're just okay with how much you drink and how much it distorts you. And you know the scriptures say to be sober-minded and not to get drunk on wine. We even heard that at the beginning. That wasn't even planned, okay? That just kind of happened. Um, but that, okay, God's up to something, okay? I, I, I really mean that. That wasn't like a fake out, okay? So my point being, my point being, I think for some of you, you've just come to peace with how you use alcohol, how you use substances. Like there's something in your life you've just come to peace with and you're no longer battling it. You're no longer fighting it. You're no longer saying I need to deal with this and wrestle with it and seek wise counsel and seek help. You've just made peace with it. And then finally, let me talk to you about the sin that everyone does. The sin that everyone does. Like everyone around you is this way, so why would you change? Everyone around you does it, so why is it a big deal? Everyone around you uses foul and vulgar language, curses all the time. So why is it a big deal for you? You've made peace with it or it stays secret. You don't think it's a big deal. And here's what happens. These sins start to stack up in our lives. And it's not the ones everyone can see and the one everyone knows. It's the secret stuff that we don't think is a big deal. We've made peace with it because everyone does it. And it's that sin that keeps you stuck. It's that sin that keeps you where you are. It's that sin that keeps you from moving forward. So what are we going to do? We're going to throw off sin. Why are we going to do this? Why does the Bible call you to throw off your sin? Here, real clear, it is robbing you of your joy. 
Okay, can I just tell you the thing I'm going to try to tell you every single time I talk about sin? Um, your sin will not cost you your salvation. Isn't that great news to anyone in this room? Your sin will never cost you your salvation because Christ Jesus paid for all of it, not just some of it. That's the good news of the gospel. Your sin will not and cannot cost you your salvation. You're secure in Christ. But your sin can cost you your joy. It can cost you your peace. That's why David in Psalm 51 doesn't say, Lord, restore to me my salvation. He says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. He's lost his joy, not his salvation. And I just want to invite you tonight, if you're walking in some kind of sin, um, you will never lose your salvation that is secure in Christ. But you can go the rest of your days living this like half-hearted joy, so much less than what God wants from you. So, so ultimately, what are we going to do? We're going to throw off sin. Why? Because it's robbing us of our joy. And then how are we going to do that? Through two tools, confession and repentance. Confession. Every time I say confession, some of you come from a Roman Catholic background or you've watched any American television ever and it's always a little booth with a little slider and it's like this whole situation. That is not what we teach here. And listen, I'm not here to knock that. I think there maybe could be some value even in confessing things to one another. Your confession is principally and primarily to God. And it's not because God's unaware. It's not like God's like, well, you did what? Like God knows. He knows exactly what you did. But you confess it because when you put something into words, it loses power in your life. Can I say that again for someone? Once you can put it into words, it will lose power in your life. And anything you refuse to articulate will only get worse. Anything you won't actually say is going on in your life will only take up more power in your life. So we confess it. We confess it to the Lord. Some people ask me, should I confess it to other people? If you wounded them, confess it to them. If it was a big public sin, confess it publicly. If it's a private thing, confess it privately. If you need to confide in someone because you need help, do that as well to bring the light in. But what do we do? We confess, and then we repent. The word repent just means a change of mind. I use this phrase, this image over and over again. It's that you plant your foot in the ground, and you turn a different direction. It's not that just you feel bad. It's not that just you feel guilty. It's that you actually make changes in your life. Metanoia, the Greek word for repent, means a change of heart or a change of mind. Are you stuck tonight? Do you feel stuck in your faith? Do you feel stuck in how to move forward with Jesus? Have you lost that heat you once had, that passion and fire you once had? You need to throw off sin. But then what's the second thing it says? It's not just that we're gonna throw off sin, it's that we're gonna throw off everything that hinders. We're gonna throw off everything that hinders. So what does that mean? It means that there are things, there's two categories here. There's sin, and then there's everything that hinders. And I need you to know that when it comes to behavior in your life, there is sin, and then there's things that are not sinful, but are not wise for your life. There's sin issues, and then there's wisdom issues. And this is a thing that is going to be unique to every single person. So when I stand up here and talk about sin, that is going to apply to every person in this room based on the commands of the Lord from the word of God. But I wanna to talk to you tonight about things that might not be a problem for some of you, but might be a problem for others. These are the things that easily entangle. So let me give you a few examples, some from my own life, some maybe from yours. Um, let me give you the first one. First one for me is this, obsessively following sports. Okay, I'm just gonna confess this. Some of you, not a big deal. You don't obsessively follow sports. Some of you will know exactly what this is like. Um, when I was in high school, I remember um, the power the San Francisco 49ers had on my life, okay? And, and this was back when the San Francisco 49ers were good, before they were bad, before they were good, before they were bad, and now they're terrible, okay? That, those were the days. And I just remember the days where like the Niners were doing good and everything was good in my life and my entire emotional well-being for a day would be caught up in how some stupid team that doesn't care about me at all was doing, okay? And here's what I know. I know that for me, that became something that entangled. 
It became this obsessive thing that I thought about and talked about and was into and completely wrapped up in in a way that wasn't healthy. It's not like in my leisure time I watched a game and it was fine. It was like it took up so much bandwidth in my life. And again, some of you have no idea what this is like, but some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And there's something that can happen in our lives when we start to become obsessive about something, especially something we can't even control, that can actually be something that entangles, something that hinders us from focusing and completely giving our lives over to Jesus Christ. Again, for some of you, not an issue at all, not a sin issue, a wisdom issue. Let me give you the next one. Some of you will relate to this more. Is social media scrolling. And then could I just add social media scrolling? I think I meant to do this. Late at night, way past the time you should have gone to bed, Right? Right? So it's like, it's like you said you were going to go to bed at 10.30 tonight, and it's 4.30 in the morning, and you're still rolling. Right? And you're laughing because you know it's true. You've been there. And let me just ask you that question. After you've like scrolled forever, they talked about during an early pandemic when people were just looking for bad news. They called it doom scrolling. You just forever, you're like, oh, let's look for more bad news. Right? And you did that. Do you, do you feel more of Jesus? Do you want more of God in your life after that? Do you feel closer to Christ? Do you feel more holy? Do you sense a deeper passion for the mission of God in your life? Or do you just kind of feel lost in all things? And so again, I'm not anti-social media. I just think for some of you, social media scrolling late into the evening, you just kind of do this every night before you go to bed. Like, Like if I sat you down and said, what is the last thing you should do before you go to bed? I don't think anyone in this room is gonna be like, gotta get through every Instagram story, right? I don't think anyone's gonna say that. But some of you do that. And it's become a nightly thing. And it's something that hinders. Let me give you another one. We'll go a little deeper here. Let's talk about the YouTube rabbit hole, right? We all know the YouTube rabbit hole, right? You watch one video and it goes to the next video and then it auto plays the next video and then you see something here. And again, you've just kind of dumped all of this time into watching video after video after video and you're not even sure where your time went. Is that making you more like Jesus? Is that stirring your heart for the things of the Lord? And listen, the answer might be yes. The answer might be that you actually found some sermons and you're going down the sermon rabbit hole. Even that can get destructive, but, but, but maybe you found it. But, but here's the thing for you. I just want you to think about the places in your life and the things in your life that aren't sinful. They're just not wise for you. They're, they're not bad. It's just for you in this season, it's not helping. But let me give you one final one, and this will raise the temperature in the room, is politics. Politics. You know what I've learned? I've learned that for me, if I get too obsessed about politics, I'll start to make it my God. Uh, I've learned that if I get too obsessed about politics, I'll start to think that whoever gets elected to president or whatever law passes or whatever Supreme Court person gets in is going to change everything about my entire existence and everything is wrapped around that. And I'll start to actually wrap the part of my soul that should be wrapped around Jesus around the White House. I'll start to wrap everything around my soul upon the latest thing that happened. I'll get outraged at everything. I'll get irritable at you and my kids and my wife about something happening thousands of miles away. And listen, it may even impact me. It's just I've given it over to my heart, the place in my heart that God and God alone should have. And so here's what I've had to learn. There's just certain seasons in my life that I need to mute politics. Not because politics isn't important, not because it doesn't matter, not because I'm not going to vote, but because there are just certain seasons I know that this is not making me more like Jesus. I want to speak to some of you boldly tonight. Some of you have an obsession with politics that's making you less Christ-like. And you need to repent. You need to turn from it. We want to throw off everything that hinders. Uh, Again, I'm not anti-politics. I'm anti-politics having that role of God in your life. What are we going to do? We're going to throw off everything that hinders. Why? Because it ruins your appetite for God. That's what these things are doing. Again, there's sin, and we know sin is bad. But here's what I want you to identify in your life. What are the things that aren't sin 
but ruin my appetite for God. Like, like I'll put it to you this way. It was almost a year ago. It was Valentine's Day of last year. I remember this. Um, when I went out to a restaurant. Remember restaurants, those things we used to go to before the world ended? Okay, restaurants. Um, and for Valentine's Day, I convinced Danny to go to this Brazilian steakhouse. And I love those places, right? If you've never been to a Brazilian steakhouse, basically it's this place, they have like the big skewers of meat, huge swords, and they just walk around like shaving it onto your plate. And it's amazing because you go there and there's like 20 kinds of meat. They shave it onto your plate. It is just like amazing and paradise. But here's what they do every time you walk in the door. They walk in the door, they're like, the meat will come by soon. But if you'd like, our salad bar is over here, right? And and, and now listen, I'm not anti-salad. I probably need to eat more salads. I'm not anti-salad. I get the whole salad thing. But when I go to the Brazilian steakhouse, my goal is not to eat salad. You know what they're doing? They're tricking me into eating salad so it will ruin my appetite for the meat. And here's what happens for some of us. We are tricked into these pathetic, small, silly little things, and it ruins our appetite for God. That's what happens. I think that's happened for some of you. You're stuck not because you're in some horrible, terrible, bad sin, but because every morning you get up and scroll through Twitter and look for the latest political outrage. And then you wonder why your heart feels far from God. It's not because you're doing some horrible, terrible, bad sin that you need to repent of. It's because you've just gotten together with a group of friends, and every time you get together, you talk about nonsense, and you never talk about anything real, and that's your entire friend circle. Like, what does it do? Ultimately, it dulls, it ruins, it takes away our appetite for God. And so what do we want to do? We want to throw off everything that hinders. Why? Because it's robbing you of your appetite for God. And how are we going to do that? We're going to become ruthlessly self-aware. Ruthlessly self-aware. I think one of the things as a Christian you need to learn is where does wisdom come into you following Jesus? And let me explain it by this. Um, What things do you need to do as a follower of Jesus that other people might not need to do? Um, self-awareness can be as simple as you. Um, I'm going to speak to men. I know this is a problem for women as well. Um, men, I think there's some TV shows, movies you just shouldn't watch. Because every time you do, it just starts to stir your mind up toward thoughts that you don't want, toward sexual sin that you don't want to walk down. So I just think like self-awareness is saying, I'm just not going to be in that environment. I'm not going to go to that place. Um, Listen, if you're a recovering alcoholic, the worst place you can be is somewhere where everyone's drinking alcohol. So there's like a self-awareness that happens here. But then that self-awareness can happen on the other side as well. Well, where you just start to learn like, here's how I start to feel close to Jesus. And so here's something about me that is utterly not unique and interesting, but it's true nonetheless. Um, I know if I get up, Early in the morning, for me, that's about 6.30. That's right before my kids got out of bed, right around 7 a.m. If I can be up at 6.30 to 7 a.m. with a hot cup of coffee and my Bible, I know I will have a 10% better day, okay? Almost all the time. Sometimes I'm just in a grouchy mood. But, but, but if I can get up and be with the Word of God and be in a journal and have my Bible and coffee, I just know I'll have a better day. And that's true of so many people. But listen to me. That might not be true of you. Can I just release some of you from this unfounded pressure, this unbelievable guilt? You feel that you're not a morning person, so you've always felt less spiritual? For some of you, late at night with your Bible is the most fruitful time you could possibly spend with the Lord. But you know what you've got to become to know that? You've got to become ruthlessly self-aware. You've got to become the type of person who says, I know exactly, I know exactly where I can spend the best time with the Lord. And then go schedule that. Like you've just got to become the type of person who knows, here's what stirs my affections for Jesus. Here's what robs my affections for Jesus. So, so like I mentioned to you, um, politics, right? Politics is something that if I'm not careful, I'll start to get really heated and passionate and start to view everything through the lens of politics. So you know what I've done? This has been brilliant. Um, there are people who choose to use their social media as just this constant, nonstop stream of political chatter. And you know what I've done? 
this might even include some of you. I've muted you. It's wonderful. It's so great. Oh, my gosh. Oh, it's like you just constantly, and, and listen, it's not just like a mute people I disagree with, so I'm in my echo chamber. No, I might even agree with you, but that's the, it's worse when I agree with you because I'm like, yeah, that's right. You know, like, I've muted you. And do you know what my heart is? Far more peaceful. I started doing this back in September. It was the greatest discovery I've ever made, the mute button, where it's like I still follow you and all that kind of stuff, but just like you're muted. And I just know for me, that kind of self-awareness helps keep my eyes on Jesus. And listen, for some of you, you might be out there and be like, Brian, you should be able to see politics and not get stirred up like that and have a rational, reasonable response. And you're absolutely right. I've just got growing to do in Jesus. I'm not saying that as a joke. I do. I'm just self-aware enough to know where I am in the journey right now. And so I think for all of us, there just has to be this thing where we're going, okay, where can I grow? What stirs my heart? What does my phone do to my spiritual life? What is late night, early morning? What kind of things, what kind of things set me off? What kind of things trigger me toward my sin? You should have a ruthless self-awareness, and that's how we throw off everything that hinders. Wisdom comes from understanding yourself, understanding the world, and knowing that there are things that are not necessarily sinful, but are nonetheless keeping you from following Jesus like you should. The text goes on this way. It says, um, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And and I love this metaphor in the scripture. And and what we're going to see is there's a race that we're running, right? This idea that we are running after Jesus. We're supposed to throw off sin and this, this sin that's entangling and these weights that are on us. And we're running after Jesus. But then it says to run this race with perseverance, which tells me this isn't a hundred meter dash, okay? This isn't this quick little race that we're running. This is a marathon. And I love this about the scriptures because every time the scriptures describe spiritual growth, it describes it as a long, slow process. It's like a marathon. It's like a seed that you cast into the ground. It's like leaven that you put into bread and you slowly watch it grow. Like spiritual growth is never crockpot. I'm sorry, it's always crockpot. It's never microwave, right? It's always this slow thing that develops. And I love the metaphor, especially of a marathon, because if you're going to do a marathon, if I told you, hey, guess what? Next year, you're going to do a marathon, um, outside of being a little bit panicked, here's what you probably wouldn't do. You probably wouldn't wake up 52 weeks from today and be like, okay, I guess I'll stretch a little and go run this thing out and try my best. Of course you wouldn't do that. You would die like a mile in. You're just like, I'll run as hard as I can for 26.2 miles and it'll be great. Like, of course you don't do that. What does it do? It takes time and it takes training for you to do a marathon right. Right? It takes time for you to build up the cardiovascular ability for you to actually run that far. And then it takes training. Like marathon runners don't just run the same pace for 26 miles. There's a strategy. There's training that goes on here. And you know what's so beautiful? Like this idea that it takes time and it takes training, it takes time and it takes practice, the same is true for your spiritual growth. Do you know that spiritual growth takes time? It always takes time. And for some of you, the greatest frustration in your life isn't that you're not growing, it's that it's taking too long. And for some of you, it just need to relieve you of the pressure that you're supposed to have arrived at some point at this point in your life. So some of you, like as a teenager, were so passionate about holiness in Jesus, and now you're 23 years old and you're not where you thought you were gonna be and you think you failed. But can I just be the one to like take that guilt away from you? Spiritual growth takes time. And then I'll tell you this, spiritual growth takes practice. It takes deliberate, intentional practice. For you to grow as a follower of Jesus, it doesn't just happen. When you grow as a follower of Jesus, it happens with practice over time. Let me give you a few examples. Do you know that understanding the Bible takes practice? 
Like understanding the Bible. If you've ever read the Bible and thought, wow, this is confusing. Do you know that you're in a really exclusive club called Everyone Ever? Right? Right. Do you know that there's actually, this is, I didn't, I'm not going to put it on the screen because I don't have it, uh, but in 1 Peter, there's actually a Bible verse where Peter <laughs> expresses his confusion about what Paul was writing in his letters. He goes, some of the things that Paul writes are really hard to understand. And you're like, me too, you know? It, it, it takes practice. So yeah, you're going to open up the Bible sometimes and have no idea what it means. Like, welcome to the club. It takes practice. We learn, we think, we grow, we look things up. I am a pastor. I've been to undergraduate for theology school, five years of graduate school. I study this for my life. There's still times I read a verse and I go, no clue, no clue. And that's a good thing. It takes practice. It takes your whole life of practice. Do you know that praying fruitfully takes practice? Like some of you tried praying once and you like got into your room and you shut everything off and you threw your phone out the window and you set an egg timer. You're going like to pray for five minutes and you sat there for like 14 seconds went, this, this isn't working. And you went away. And, and it's like, no, praying fruitfully takes practice. It takes practice to just pray all throughout the day like the, the Bible calls us to pray constantly. It takes practice to sit down in a room in total silence and pray for five minutes. In fact, I think most of us probably couldn't do that super fruitfully because we've not practiced at that. If you've never practiced at something, why would you expect to do it well? Do you know giving generously actually takes practice? You know what the greatest lie some of you believe right now is? Once I'm rich, I'll give generously. That's the greatest lie some of you have ever believed. Do you know that the people who give generously at this church and around the world gave generously when they were more broke than you are? And again, I just think the temptation when we are young is to think, once I'm financially secure, I'll give generously. Do you know that you will never be financially secure? ever, that to give generously takes practice, to give generously. The people in this church who give hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to the work at this church were giving an enormous amount of their income when they were making less than you were making now because they practiced. And so here's the deal. If you've never given anything, what do you do? You start practicing. Could you do a dollar a week? You're like, a dollar a week's not going to change anything around here. Maybe not. It's going to change your life though. A dollar a week. Start practicing. Do something. And you're like, I don't want to give it to the church. I don't trust the church. Okay, find a church you trust. Truly. Because if the thing standing between you and giving generously and even doing the practice it takes to give generously is our church somehow, I need you to find a church you can trust and love and give to. And it doesn't have to be us. Because giving generously takes practice. And if you don't give generously when you don't have a lot of money, you will not give generously when you do. Next one, um, uh, overcoming sin takes practice. Uh, again, I talked to some of you who have just kind of been stuck in some kind of sin you're mired in. I just want to remind you, it takes practice. It doesn't happen right away. It takes practice to learn to choose holiness over sin because it's just so been built into your brain that you choose that sin every time. And, and then finally, learning to be still takes practice. Like learning to be still and not to move and not to freak out, not to panic over everything. It takes practice. It takes practice. And then finally, trusting God takes practice too. It takes practice to trust God. And if you're going, I'm just in this place in my life where I'm just so concerned and so worried and so overwhelmed, it's probably just because you haven't put in the practice. And maybe God's actually using this season of life and stress and anxiety you're in right now so you can have the practice it takes to actually trust God. Well, let me show you how it continues this way in verse 2. It says, we've just gotten through one verse, but believe me, it'll go a little faster, but not much. Um, it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. So what's the ultimate command? The ultimate thing we're called to do here is to fix our eyes on Jesus. And how does it describe Jesus? It describes him as the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. 
When it says that he is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the pioneer he, it means he's the one who went first, right? The pioneer is always the one who goes first, and the perfecter is always the one who goes last. So what's this describing Jesus as? He's the first and the last of our faith. He's the beginning and the end of our faith. Looking at Jesus and talking about Jesus and singing about Jesus and considering Jesus isn't something you ever move past as a Christian. It is the A to Z of your faith. Actually, I jumped, I jumped the gun. Tim Keller says it this way. The gospel is not just the ABC of the Christian life, but the A to Z of the Christian life. And I would add this, Jesus is not just the ABC of the Christian life. It's not just like you learn about Jesus and you learn that he saved you and then you move on to other things. And my concern sometimes is what can happen is we can get to this place where we kind of know the whole Jesus thing and so we kind of want to move on to other things. And those other things can include a bazillion different things and usually they're things you're like, oh, I never thought of that before. And listen, it's good to be in church and hear something you never thought of. What the Bible's gonna bring us back to over and over and over again is the most important thing you'll do in church is set your eyes on the one you've thought of before. And that's Jesus. Jesus is not something you move past to get to other things. He's the one we return to. You think about him, you talk about him, you write about him, you share about him, you text about him, you get in small group together about him, you sing about him, you think about him, you talk about him over and over and over again. And why does this matter? It says we're gonna fix our eyes on Jesus. And why does this matter? So, um, I was reading a book just recently and, and, and asked some others um, on our staff to even consider this book. Uh, and it's a book called Deep Work. Um, and it's by a guy named James Clear. And, and it's not a Christian book. He's not a Christian author as, as far as I can tell. Um, but he wrote this. And I remember reading this quote in his book years ago. Uh, and I was reading it on a plane, which always makes reading sound cooler. Uh, I was on a plane reading it and, and I highlighted it. And actually I had to stop to think about what he wrote. Uh, and again, hear this, not a Christian author, but, but I love what he said. He says this, he says, we tend to place a lot of emphasis on our circumstances, assuming to what happens to us or fails to happen determines how we feel. Decades of research contradict this understanding. Our brains instead construct our worldview based on what we pay attention to. And I highlighted it. And I sat there and I thought to myself, I am so glad decades of research has finally caught up with what the Bible wrote down 2,000 years ago. That the ultimate thing for our lives It's not what happens to us, it's not the circumstances, it's not what's going around in the culture, but it's what we choose to pay attention to. Our brains construct our worldview, construct our reality based on what we pay attention to. And so here's my question for all of you tonight. If you're stuck, if you feel stuck, here's my question. What has your attention? What has your attention? What is the thing you're obsessed with? What is the thing you're looking at? What is the thing your eyes are on? What is the thing your brain has built its entire reality around? Because whatever that thing is, whatever your eyes are stuck on, whatever your eyes are fixed on, is forming and shaping your reality. So uh, let me give you a few examples tonight. And the first one out of the gate, I'm just going to meddle in some of your lives. Um, what, what, what has your attention? Can I ask um, your mom's opinion? Like, are you just in this place in life where every decision you make, you think, okay, what will my mom think? And okay, did she like that or did she not? And then you're around her and you say you're gonna do something and she reacts, but it's not quite the reaction you want. But maybe she was having a bad day, but maybe she disapproves. And now I've gotta think about it for 472 hours, right? Some of you do this. And like your entire world is built around what your mom thinks about you. And listen, I think you should love your mom and honor your mom and respect your mom and even listen to your mom. But if your entire attention is wrapped around your mom's opinion, it's just gonna ruin you. And for some of you, you've not been able to detach as adults from the opinion of your parents. And you need to have this kind of faith that says, listen, my whole life, my whole world, my attention is not going to be around my mom's opinion. Um, Can I throw out another one that might be true of you? Maybe it's the criticism of strangers. 
Do you know what a weird age we live in that some of you are far more concerned about the criticism of stranger than the criticisms of the people sitting around you right now? Like, and I know you're terrified of this, and, and, and everyone claims they don't care what people think of them, but I know you care what people think of you because you have deleted posts on social media. You've thought to yourself, I'm going to post this, and then you're like, oh, no, what's that person? And then you're just, like, doing this math of, like, okay, maybe this sounds this way, and you're constantly trying to kind of dial it in. And listen, I'm not saying you shouldn't be sensitive on that. I'm just saying for some of you, you are so terrified that some stranger's not going to like what you put on the Internet or disapprove of your position or disapprove of your view that, that it just cripples you into silence. Like, they have your attention. Like, you're not worried so much about offending the people around you. It's the opinions of strangers. Uh, maybe for some of you, the thing that has your attention right now is the media outrage machine. Um, can I just remind you over and over and over again that the news does not exist to inform you? That the news exists to keep your attention. That's the job of the news, to keep your attention, to keep your eyeballs on it so it can sell advertisements. And listen, it's not that there's no good newscasters or no good people in the news industry. You're like, I do the weather. Great, like we love you, right? But, but, but listen to me. Like, like the media outrage machine is just built for you to be mad all the time. And you know what it's built for? It's built for you to be mad so you'll keep looking at it. It's like this. Every headline I see right now is coronavirus numbers are improving. But... And you're like, oh, you know? And, and then there's some back half. It's like, the worst is yet to come. And you're like, oh, no! You know, like that's the whole thing. Everything in the news is built to make you angry. And it's so targeted. Like, they know it so well. They're like, you're a little bit more conservative, so we'll make you angry on this thing. And you're more liberal, and we'll make you angry on this thing. And you're kind of unknown, so we'll make you angry on everything. Right? That's what it is. It's the media outreach machine. And hear me, if that's got your attention, if you're just constantly churning through all the outrageous things of the day, that's just good news. You've never lived in a better time in human history to be mad about things. You can find it all day. For, for some of you, it's the media outrage machine. For some of you, it's an Instagram page. And maybe it's like a bunch of pages, but maybe it's just one. Like, I, can I just suggest to you that for some of you, the little explore tab on any social media is the worst thing that ever happened to you? Because you just kind of go down that rabbit hole and suddenly you're looking at another human being and their Photoshop perfectly dialed in body. And you're like, well, I don't look like that. So I guess I'll just be sad for the rest of the night. Like, that's what you do. Like your heart was perfectly fine, everything was good, your life was going well, you didn't feel insecure, you went on the explore page, saw someone, and you're like, well, I'm the worst, right? You do that. Or you get jealous of their family, or you get jealous of their marriage, or their relationship, or their kids, you get jealous of their, their career, you get jealous and bitter about where your life is at. Like your Instagram page has this thing where it just captures your heart. And then finally, can I just talk about some of you, your attention is on your own image, do, do y'all realize that, um, for the most part, I know some of you might not be going through this reality, um, we have never paid more attention to our own image. And, and I don't mean just like we're vain and we look at ourselves in the mirror and anytime you see a group photo, your eyes immediately go to you. You like, you just ignore all of your friends. You're like, ooh, me, right? But here's what I've noticed lately. I've never spent more time in my life looking at myself on video because I'm on Zoom chats all the time, right? And here's what I do on Zoom chats. I just can't help it. I'm just like... I try to look away and I look at my face. And this is so strange because never before in my entire life have I sat in meetings with other human beings and, and just been like, I wonder how I look right now. I'm like holding up a mirror to myself. That's so bizarre. But that's what some of us do. Can I just bless some of you tonight to plead with you to turn off the self-view on your video chat so you don't have to look at you? Because here's the deal. And if you're like, I gotta look at me because I gotta make sure the lighting's right and I gotta make sure I look good. Can I just relieve you of the fear that you look bad on a video chat? Nobody cares because you know who they're paying attention to? Themselves. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. 
The most beautiful recognition you have is no one cares how you look like tonight because they're all thinking about themselves. And once you, that's a whole different sermon. Anyway, what has your attention? Because here's the truth. And here's what I really believe is being taught here in Hebrews chapter 12. Um, I believe what's being taught is this, that, that, that you become what you pay attention to. And if you're just constantly paying attention to the media outrage machine, you know what you're going to become? An outraged woman, an outraged man. If you're constantly paying attention to your mom and wondering what she's going to think and wondering what your dad's, you know what you're going to become? Just like your parents. That's what you're going to become. You're just going to become them. If you're constantly obsessing over the image that you think you're supposed to have, you might become that, but you'll never be happy. But here's what the scripture is saying. When we pay attention to Jesus, we will become like him. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, we become like the son of God. And what you pay attention to means so much in your life. It means more than you could possibly imagine. That you're becoming what you pay attention to. And so if you feel stuck right now, let me just ask you, what are you paying attention to tonight? It goes on this way. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Like, I love how it describes Jesus' death on the cross. It's like Jesus endured the cross. He endured this cross. Like, it was painful beyond anything we could reckon or imagine, and yet he endured it. And he scorned not only the pain of the cross, but the shame. He's hanging up there naked, okay? Every, every picture has, like, some little covering. That's, like, a nice thing, and it's good we do. But he's just, like, naked, exposed, brutalized up there. And it says, after that, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. But why did Jesus go through all that? Why did he die on the cross? Why did he bear your pain and your guilt and your suffering and your shame and your sin? Why did he go through that? Is it because he loves you? Yes. Is it because he was obedient to God? Yes. Like all of these things are true, but here's what this actually tells us. Jesus did it for the joy set before him. Like in other words, Jesus looked at that cross and said, on the other side of that cross, there's joy. So I'm in. I'm in. I'll go to that cross if on the other side of it, there's joy. I just need someone to hear me tonight. Someone who feels stuck, someone who has something to deal with, something who has pain, you're walking through something, you're going through a season where you just feel like I need to push through. Do you know that the other side of not giving up is eternal joy? The other side of you not giving up is eternal joy. Jesus endured the cross, not just because it was the right thing to do, but because there was joy on the other side. And hear me, if you feel stuck tonight, you not giving up, the other side of that is joy, eternal joy eternal peace, something no one in this room and no one in your family and no one in this world can touch. And then here's how the scripture closes tonight. The the last thing we're gonna look at, um, and our band will make their way back up and we'll sing as always at the end here. It says in verse three, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Um, So one of the things I always try to point out is that the Bible never commands you to do something or not do something unless it assumes it's going to be a problem. Like when the Bible commands you not to steal, it assumes that sometimes you're going to want to steal. And when the Bible commands you not to lie, it assumes you're going to want to lie. And when the Bible says that they do not want you to grow weary and lose heart, it assumes something. The Bible assumes that there are times where you will want to quit. The Bible assumes that there will be times you want to quit and throw in the towel and not follow Jesus anymore and not walk with him and not pray to him and not sing about him and not consider him and not repent from your sin. You know, the Bible just assumes there are times you kind of want to quit. And I just imagine there's someone in this room or someone listening online tonight who's kind of sometimes felt like maybe I'll just give up on the whole Jesus thing and I'll just go pursue my sin and my life and just do my thing because it's just too stressful and too much for me. And then you kind of feel guilty. Like, how could I, a follower of Jesus, ever think that? But you know what the Bible does? The Bible assumes you're going to think that maybe even often. 
And that's why it says, do not grow weary and lose heart. And what does it say? Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners that you and me, that we might not grow weary and lose heart. So if tonight you're losing heart, tonight you feel stuck, tonight you're not sure you want to keep fighting, I hope you've heard this, I hope you've received this, and I hope you hear the five words that this text is calling us toward. It's simple. These five words. You would fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from weary sinners that you might not grow weary and lose heart. That's the invitation for you if you feel stuck. That you don't have to be. You don't have to live this way. You can fix your eyes on Jesus. And you don't have to grow weary. You don't have to give up. But you can experience what the Bible says when it says that you are more than conquerors through him who saved us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for tonight and I thank you for your word. Um, I thank you. God, thanks that you love sinners like us. Thanks that you love the person right now who's struggling stuck, stuck in their sin, stuck in their insecurity, stuck in their pain, stuck in the past, can't move on, can't go forward. God, thanks that you love them, that you sent Jesus for them. God, I pray tonight was a word for them. God, I just pray the Holy Spirit is already doing work in ways that none of us can even explain. I pray for the person who doesn't even feel like this message is for them. God, that you're working in some mysterious way that we could never possibly figure out. So God, unstick us tonight. Just move us out of the muck and the mire that we've been stuck in. God, would you move people forward like never before? Not through our strength and not through our power, but by the glorious nature of your son, Jesus, the one seated at the right hand of the throne of God. God, help us to look to him, help us to see him. And through gazing upon Jesus, may you make us more like him. May we be transformed from glory to glory into the image of God, into the image of your son, into the image of Christ. Make us more like him, God, we pray. And all God's people said amen and said amen.